Uh, we are excited that you're here. We're in a teaching series of Mark, and I'm going to try to try to keep stuff short today. But uh, if you brought your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. If you're paying attention, chapter 8 is the very center of Mark's gospel. In a lot of ways, he kind of comes back to the big themes. It's a, it's a turning point in Mark's gospel. Things are about to change. Uh, if you track uh, even the geography of Jesus in Mark's gospel, you'll see that he kind of bounces around uh, the, the north, but he's about to make a beeline towards Jerusalem. You can even track this whole thing like uh, through the geography. You can, you can Google Maps it if you want. But in uh, chapter 8, right here at the end of chapter 8, we're just going to spend uh, some time on a couple of verses. Let's begin at verse 27. It's on the screen if you, uh, if you forgot to bring your Bible. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, all right, so just quick side note, remember Mark is writing Peter's eyewitness, right? Mark was a disciple under Peter in the early church. The, those eyewitnesses, Peter, who is right there, the Peter, is right there, has been telling his stories, his eyewitness account with Jesus, and Mark is writing it down. So Mark is writing the story down that Peter is saying. And Peter is, tells Mark, hey, he replies in this moment, like, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter has got to include this moment in the story, right? Because this is Peter's Braveheart speech moment. Like, let's be honest, Peter didn't always get it right. But in this moment, Peter nails it. He looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah. And it says in verse 30, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So right here, let's spend a few minutes just talking about these verses Right here in the center of Mark, we come to what is really the essential question. In chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm. If you guys remember, the disciples are terrified. Jesus speaks over the storm, and he calms the storm. And do you remember what the disciples say? You remember what question they ask? They say, who is this guy? And now we're coming back again to that question, that important, critical identity question. Jesus is digging in. He, he's asking them, who do people say that I am? So like the, the, the Pharisees are confused about who he is. All the religious people in Mark are very confused. If you look carefully in Mark, the demons and the unclean spirits, they always know who Jesus is, right? Even when the clouds part, the heavens know who Jesus is. And now Jesus is, is leaning in with this question of who do people say that I am? And they give us some popular answers, right? great teacher, maybe a prophet. And then Jesus does something unique. He says, okay, I know what they say. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. Says, you are the Messiah. But let's talk about that. Because Messiah is not a word we use all the time. 
You know, I've never pointed to somebody or introduced anybody as, you know, hey, that's Charlie. He's the Messiah. Uh, you know, like, it's just not common language for us. So let's, let's talk about Peter's answer. Is his answer correct? Yes, 100%. Jesus is the Messiah. But what does that mean? What does Messiah mean? So um, let's talk about the Roman Empire. I think maybe even, Stephen, did I put him on a map? Okay, so here's a map of the Roman Empire. You guys remember this? You ever hear about like gladiators and all that kind of stuff, right? Roman Empire. So for almost 500 years, the Roman Empire ruled the known world. There were other empires that we didn't know about, but for 500 years, the Roman Empire ruled the known world. Um, you ever play that game Risk? The game in Risk, you know the hardest part to get is that middle piece? Rome did it. Look, this is how far and wide they spread. And how long has the, the United States of America been around? How many years have we been around? Anybody know? A couple hundred? Rome is like 500, almost 500 years. Um, and Rome ruled this area with an iron fist. Uh, there's the Christmas story that we skip over every single year. If you look in Matthew's gospel, it tells the story of a Roman king. His name was Herod the Great. And Herod was in charge of that ancient Near East section over here on your right-hand side. He was appointed by Caesar to be king of this really specific area called Judea. And you know what they called him? Because that area was filled with Jews, they called him the king of the... Yeah, somebody else goes by that name occasionally, right? And so Herod ruled this area. He was the king of the Jews, but he was a tyrant king leader. Um, uh, Matthew doesn't elaborate on this, but in Matthew's telling of, of Jesus' birth narrative, we know that we know that Herod the Great was, uh, he, he killed his wives and kids because he was afraid they were going to take his power. Caesar said of Herod the Great, the king he appointed, Caesar said he would rather be Herod's swine than Herod's son because it was safer. And in Matthew, when wise men show up looking for the Messiah, the newborn king of the Jews, it really gets Herod's attention. You remember how he responds. Herod the Great has every male child two years old and younger in Bethlehem killed. Genocide. This is the Roman Empire. It's how things worked. It's hard for us to imagine. Uh, I mean, maybe a, a close approximation is when uh, Nazi Germany took over parts of Europe. Those parts of Europe still existed, but they lived under uh, German occupation. Does that make sense? Like there were different soldiers on every street corner, and you didn't get to live by the same rules and expectations. And Rome did that exact same thing for, for the ancient Near East, for, for Judea, where the Jews lived. There were tons of stories of times that uh, the Romans would bring pigs into the temple. You know, like Jews don't have a great relationship with pigs. But Romans would just bring pigs into the Holy of Holies. They would bring standards and representations of other gods into the, into the temple. 
Caesar was known to be Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's, in fact, you would say, Caesar is Lord. And they had this, uh, this way of, if you tried to rise up against the, the empire, the occupying force, uh, they had this really effective way of dealing with uprisings. They called it crucifixion. And on numerous occasions, they crucify hundreds and sometimes even thousands of people along a road for miles and miles and miles just to remind everyone that they're in charge. Is it any wonder when Peter replies, hey, you are the Messiah, is it any wonder that Jesus warns him, hey, don't tell anybody? Right? Rome's not going to respond well. And that word Messiah, what does it mean? Go ahead, Stephen. I think you've got that slide. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Uh, The same word, the exact same word in Greek is Christ or Christos. So Messiah and Christ are actually the exact same word, just in two different languages. And they both mean anointed one. Um, anointed one is another way of saying king, right? Um, in the Old Testament, uh, David is anointed by Samuel when he becomes king. It's you poured oil over someone that is chosen by God, appointed by God, uh, to accomplish the purpose of God, to accomplish the will of God, right? Does that make sense? So, The anointed one, especially in the Jewish mind, is a great king leader like David, right? Right now over Judea, there's a king called Herod the Great. But one day, a new king like David or Solomon or others, like there are other other anointed kings in Old Testament, a new anointed one, a new Messiah is going to come. And what's this new Messiah going to do? It's going to drive out the occupying force, right? It's going to get the Romans out of there so they can live and breathe on their own. This new king, uh, uh, the Jews would have thought of like Messiah, uh, Christ as, as a nationalistic king or leader, a rescuer. In the Jewish mind, especially in this time, A Messiah was someone like, uh, the best example I have is Patton. All right, my favorite movie of all time, it's close, there are are others up there, but is is the movie Patton by George C. Scott. You guys ever seen this movie? You guys know what I'm talking about? Awesome, I'm the only one. Go Netflix it, right? Okay, somebody... uh, It's an old movie. It's an older movie. or It's old to me, I don't know. but it's the story of Patton, who was a general in World War II, right? Tank commander, super fierce guy. And so here's what I want to do. I, just to give you an idea of who Patton was, I want to show you a clip from this movie. It's not going to be long. It's going to be short. But, but I need permission before I show you this. Because to get the full force of who Patton is, Patton doesn't always use kind words that we use in church. Is it okay? Do any of you have, if you have really sensitive ears, what you hear here, you do not have permission to repeat any teenagers at home, okay, right? 
This is just an example, and, and the fact that he uses this language only reinforces the example. All right, so go ahead, show this clip. Show. I, I know that was extreme, but, it, but I'm trying to make a really extreme point. Given the choice between Patton and Jesus, the Jews would have chose Patton. Right. When they used the language of Messiah, they talked about a nationalistic king leader who was going to come in and free them from Roman oppression and dominate their enemies. One of the heroes in, in Jewish history is Judah Maccabeus. Do you guys know this story? Like, you know the story about the Maccabees? Judah Maccabeus is this incredible priest, warrior, priest, leader who, who drives Greek. Uh, when, when the Greeks put gods and goddesses in the temple, he goes in and he leads a huge rebellion and fights against them. Judah, has the, Judah Maccabeus has the best nickname in history because of his ferocity in battle. They called him the hammer. And when the Jews prayed for the Messiah, they prayed for this nationalistic leader that would come and rescue them. And they knew that it would mean war. They knew that it would mean destruction. But did you hear what Patton said? Did you hear how he began his speech? I won't, I won't quote it exactly. But he said, no one ever won a war by dying. Okay, let's look at Jesus' next words. Look what it says in Mark in the next few verses in uh, verse 31 through 33. Remember, the question is, what kind of Messiah and who is this Messiah? Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be, what's the word? Killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. I can tell you right now that all Peter heard and all the other disciples heard was that the Messiah was somehow going to suffer and die. They didn't hear that three days later part. And it says, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter just nailed the right answer, just got A plus on his paper. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand him. And Peter says, go ahead, go to that next slide. Peter says, how can you say such things about the Messiah? Ah, oh, I hate this next part. And Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and reprimanded Peter saying, get away from me, Satan. He said, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter received such a strong rebuke because Jesus is reframing their idea about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. You see, Peter's definition of the Messiah is the wrong definition. Peter understood what Jesus was saying. He just couldn't accept it. It was impossible for, for Peter or any of the Jews to pit. It, this was an impossible picture of the Messiah. 
He, like all Jews, expected the Messiah to be a victorious national hero, not a suffering servant. They expected Patton and got Mother Teresa, right? And the Jewish idea that the Messiah or the Christ can somehow avoid or be above humiliation, pain, and suffering is frankly, Jesus, he calls it like, this is a devil of an idea what you're holding on to. And he just tells him, he says, you know, you're really not seeing things clearly. And the implication is that if you don't know who I am, what the Messiah is really all about, then how can you know what it means to be my follower? Right? If your definition of Messiah and my definition of Messiah are different, how can you be my follower And in the very next few verses, if you look in verses um, 34 and 35, like Jesus reframes what it means to be his follower, right? In one definition, you're a soldier. You work in the army. Your job is to make other guys die for their country, right? But under Jesus' new reframed picture of what it means to be the Messiah, I'm not even going to read it. I'll let you read it. He gives them a whole new definition. What does it mean to follow the Messiah? What's included in this claim? And the implication is that you can't just simply claim to be a follower. You can't just simply speak the name Messiah and go on with life as usual. Because to claim Jesus as the anointed one will ultimately cost you your life. Are you with me? In Galatians chapter 2, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. All right, so just a few few thoughts. I know this is deep stuff. Man, thank you guys for, for hanging in there. You're, you're doing really great. You're doing really great. But let's come back to that, that, fundamental question, that fundamental question. Like, this is it. Like, all of Mark hinges on this question. And, and here's what I want to ask about this question. Like, when is a question like, who do you say I am, important? When is a question like this important? Is it important when you watch TV? What about when you're in traffic? Is this an important question when, um, uh, did you guys vote this week? Is it an important question when you vote? What about when you do your budget? See, how you answer this question, like, like it, it shows up that it is kind of important in different things at different times. And what's crazy to me is like, maybe right now this is not an important question to you at all, but there will be a time 
And, and overwhelmingly, I've never been with somebody at the end of their life that this wasn't a really important question all of a sudden. Not one time. When is this question important? What about when tornadoes and storms come? What about in times of crisis? What about um, in your relationships? Is this an important question uh, when you're talking about getting married to someone? I think that's an important question. I tell, I get to spend a lot of time with couples that are preparing for marriage. I love that space. It's really fun. Uh, and, and I tell them all the time, like, it, it's, it's easy to, to say I do one time in a huge party in front of all of your friends and family who love you, right? Like, it, and I tell them, like, you know, when it's easy to be married, it's easy to be married on vacation. We all can be married on vacation, Right? Um, but it's those other moments. It's choosing to say, I do, not just one time in front of a crowd at a big party, but it's choosing to say, I do, when your spouse is throwing up because they have the flu, right? We hope, right? Have anybody been there in marriage, Right? Like the truth, the real truth of marriage is not that you say I do one time in front of a crowd. The, the real truth of marriage is that every single day you say it again, I do, right? In times of crisis and difficulty and pain and suffering, even when your spouse has dementia or Alzheimer's, even when that person doesn't remember you, I've seen the person say I do every single day. And like the impact of that is the same with this question, right? Jesus begs them, who do you say that I am? And the truth of this question too is that like the, the answer to it is not just uh, something that we proclaim with our lips because Jesus himself is going to say, lots of people are going to call me Lord, Lord. But it comes behind that and says, but why don't you do what I say? If Jesus is your Messiah, then that reframes everything. So, as I send you to a time of communion together, we have a table set up around the room with the elements of communion. We have got some instructions on screens. This is a little bit different. If you've never been a part of this tradition, uh, uh, it's something we do each week. The elements represent the body and blood of Christ sacrificed for us. Uh, we invite you, encourage you to take them in a, in a worthy and honorable manner. And as you do so, ask yourself one question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, for its challenge and depth. Forgive us for the times that, frankly, we would just choose you to be somebody different. Sometimes, God, we've tried to manipulate you and force you to be someone different from who you are. But Father God, let us remember the truth. 
that you are the son of God, that you were sent by God to us as a sacrifice so that the whole plan and purpose of God, the reunion, the redemption, the restoration of our lives would be accomplished. Father God, it can't happen through anyone else. There is no other Christ. There is no other Messiah. There is no other anointed one but you. And so, Father God, with the proclamation, not of just our lips, but with our whole selves, let us recognize the truth of who you are this week. We love you. In your son Jesus' name, everyone together says amen. I invite you to stand and enjoy time of communion together.